The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast, Thursday, August 12th, the year of our Lord, 2021. Just gross irresponsibility on my part. As you know, we've gotten into the three live show per week format now, or three a weeks. And when we do that, typically, again, a responsible adult would already have this podcast recorded the night before. Therefore, producer Jordan could wake up at 4 a.m. because he's a space alien, largely, or a prison inmate, one or the other. And he could get it cut. He could get it out for you ideally for your drive to work or maybe for you to listen to before lunch. But nope, here I am strangled by procrastination. So I'm recording it at around lunchtime or brunch time, depending on what kind of lifestyle you're living out there. And we're going to get out as quick as possible. But my vow to you, my new week's resolution for this upcoming week is to have your Tuesday and Thursday mailbag pods delivered to you at a reasonable time that has AM behind it and not PM. So with that in mind, let's dive into the mailbag this morning. If you're new, and many of you are, judging by our numbers, thank you for checking out the Late Kick podcast. The Late Kick Extra is a two-per-week format where it's all mailbag. You can submit questions a few ways. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at LateKickJosh, or you can email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. That is not a bot account. That's really me that you're talking to. Imagine that. People like us, free to engage with our audience. And I will answer as many as I can. In this podcast feed, they show up every Tuesday and Thursday morning. Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings, you get a replay of the previous night's Late Kick Live, which airs, by the way, as it will tonight at 8 Eastern, 7 Central on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. So now that we've explained the format, let's dive into the mailbag. We had such an overflow from Tuesday. We're just basically picking up where we left off, and I'm stalling as I scroll, which is kind of inexcusable because I could pause this at any point, but... Ah, there we go. Okay, Jason kicks us off this morning. He said, with Texas and OU coming to the SEC and the thought of a four-pod system in the conference, plus the SEC being criticized for not playing nine conference games, what if the SEC made a playoff to determine the SEC champion? The winner of each of the four pods play one weekend, and then the winner plays the other to determine the champion. Jason, as you would imagine, this is being met with groans and outright punches of air from the rest of the nation who already loathe the way that the SEC views itself. Now, the SEC views itself as the ruler of the sport, and they are at the top of the sport, but I do not think that this is the route we're going. Now, what I had originally feared, and it's still in the back, back, back corner of my mind, but not at the forefront anymore, what I had thought of fear may be the right word, at the very least I thought of it, is if the SEC expanded past 16, let's say they went to 24 or up to 30, 
uh, which is the whole Death Star concept. If they did that, I didn't see a world, a realistic world at least, where the SEC was that big and had that many of the quality teams in it from a percentage of overall college football. I did not see a world where the SEC could exist in that capacity. And then you still have the college football playoff, 12 teams, whatever you want it to be, and both be legitimate. Because to me, we were approaching a world, and again, and this is this is a hypothetical world where the SEC has expanded well past 16, so they swallowed up Florida State, and they swallowed up Clemson, and whoever else you had them swallowing up. Well, at that point, you're just adding so many of the big brands in college football that the college football playoff would largely be a repeat of the SEC championship race. And I don't know that I would really take it all that seriously. Think about how it could be even now. So, Jason, I'm kind of getting away from your question. I don't think the SEC is going to format a postseason like this. So let me address that. I've kind of dovetailed off into my own world, which often happens. But think about where we are now. The format we're going to have now with 16 teams in the SEC, once you add OU and Texas, let's say we stop there, hopefully, and don't expand beyond that. And eventually we get to this 12-team playoff that uh, apparently we're still building towards. Well, six of those spots are going to be at large spots. And you're going to have six more spots that are awarded to the highest ranked conference champ. So one of those spots will be for the SEC champ any given year. So let's have some fun here. Let's say Florida won the SEC championship this year. That would be an upset from the odds making perspective. But let's just have some fun with it. Let's say the Gators win the SEC championship this year. That means they have overtaken Georgia, but Georgia no doubt has been competitive. Uh, they've probably beaten, let's say, Alabama in the SEC title game, but Alabama's ranked really high. Uh, Alabama has had to duke it out with Texas A&M, maybe LSU. Who knows what Ole Miss does? But you have your typical SEC season, let's say. All right, so your champion is certainly in your 12-team playoff. That would be Florida. Then we have six more at-large spots to fill. And there is no limit, according to the proposals that have been put out, there would be no limit to how many of your conference's teams could make this 12-team playoff, or else a conference like the SEC would never agree to it. So you've got Florida. Okay, then I'm just going to go out on a very, very sturdy limb and say I think the team Florida played in Atlanta is going to be an at-large. So let's say that's Alabama. So that's two SEC teams. Strongly believe that unless there's crippling amounts of injuries, Georgia has been one of the 10 best teams, much less 12 best teams in the country in this given year. I'm going to put them in. That's three teams. It stands to reason that Alabama got at least a strong pushback from someone in the West. Now, my guess would be two someones, but at the very least, let's say Texas A&M is that team that performed very, very well. They weren't as good as Alabama, but that's not the standard anymore. Remember, we got a 12-team playoff. We got six at-larges. We just need you to be good enough to fill one of those spots. I'm going to say Texas A&M would be good enough. I'm counting on my hand over here, and I've already got four. I've already got four fingers held up for the amount of SEC teams that I would put in this postseason. Now, you and I both know that any given year, and we're taking this year as an example, you very well could have an LSU floating out there or an Auburn floating out there right on the precipice. It's hard to have this many teams ranked that high, but now remember one of the, well, two wild cards that I haven't brought up yet. We're inserting Oklahoma and we're inserting Texas. And I'm going to just go out on, again, a very sturdy limb and guess that one of those two teams in this any given year scenario is going to be involved at a very high level in the whole conference championship race conversation, playoff race conversation. So I'm going to give it a five spot. 
I've got five SEC teams, and I don't think I've said anything unreasonable in this hypothetical about how a season could play out. Five SEC teams. So here's what we've watched, Jason. And again, I think everyone has to decide for themselves how you feel about this. You know how I feel about it. And if you're new here, I don't like it. I grew up in the South. I might as well have SEC tattooed on my ankle. But I don't like this because I don't think it's great for college football. And I don't like the expanded playoff either. So I might as well walk around with a cane. A lot of you think I'm an 80-year-old man. No, I just appreciate tradition. And I think there are some things that are worth keeping the same. Change is not always a bad thing. Change is not always a good thing. Anyway, we're not going down that road again. It's a dirt road. It gets very dusty. And then everyone just coughs and no one can see anything. And it takes our podcast down a rabbit hole that we're not going down this morning. But anyway, think about the reset button here. Let's hit it. Okay, five SEC teams in what would not be a radical year. It is not radical at all to think five teams could, with the addition of OU and Texas, float around that top 12 conversation. What's the difference? What's really the difference? We watch those five teams, among others, battle for four months for the conference championship. And then the ones that don't win the championship, they dust themselves off. They get told, oh, wait, guys, good news. We expanded the playoff to 12. So now you, 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 and you, the one wearing the conference crown, come with us. You're going to a playoff. And they say, okay, fine with us. And then they go play in a new tournament where inevitably some of the same teams are going to start bumping up against each other again. And we're going to end up with a field eventually that consists of a whole bunch of SEC teams that just finished playing each other for a conference championship or in a race for a conference championship, meeting again for just a different trophy. So right now, the national championship means something totally different than a conference championship crown. There is certainly room for both conceptually in the sporting world and the world of college football. Even I don't deny that. It's not like I am an anti-playoff guy. I'm an anti-playoff mattering more than the regular season guy. But what kind of world could that potentially turn into, Jason? And so what I'm saying is, I don't think the SEC has to structure their pod system or whatnot with a kind of SEC playoff. I think the playoff may become an SEC playoff. Now, you've got your Ohio States out there. You've got in any given year, let's say USC were to have hired Urban Meyer before he went to the Jaguars. Well, USC would be a factor in this. Uh, The Clemson Tigers are, of course, going to be a factor in this. I'm not saying you're going to have nothing but SEC. I am saying the conference is going to utterly dominate the expanded playoff. I'm absolutely telling you there will never be less parity in the overall conference strength argument than there is once you expand this thing. That will be totally and utterly dominated by three letters. One of them's S, one of them's C. You can fill in the middle. So what I've just been thinking about, it's the first time I think I've brought up this particular portion of the topic. What I've been thinking about is, if we arrive at this kind of conclusion, does the national playoff, I guess what we would call national playoff, the college football playoff, does that just start seeming like a second go-round for the SEC season? We just kind of watched the same teams that battled it out in conference play. They're now battling it out, but for a different trophy. Just, I don't know, it would feel kind of weird to me. Uh, Certainly not the way I think the sport is best structured, but no one listens to me, I guess. So we're going to move on here. Good question, though. I don't think think you got the answer you thought you'd get, Jason, but I think I addressed it in the best way I could. Alex is up next. Who on the cusp of the 2021 season is likely to become the next perennial contender? I'm thinking Texas A&M or North Carolina or Penn State or Oregon, etc., and could dominate just as Alabama or Ohio State and Oklahoma do now. If a program on the rise could indeed make a step forward, 
how likely do you think it is that one of the elite teams may have to take a step backwards? It's a good question, Alex. I think I think it is necessary if you have a true new arrival in Tier 1 of college football, it is at some level a zero-sum game. I mean, you only have so many wins to go around. This is why Georgia is not currently on the Tier 1 of college football. They're not on the Tier 1 of college football, uh, if you're talking about championships, of course, The only reason they're not there is because they share a conference with Alabama. That's the only reason they're not there, because it's a zero-sum game. The only thing that's been standing between Georgia and maybe multiple more chances at a championship or, or wins, championship win or wins, we haven't gone to the plural stage yet, so a win or wins is Alabama. That's the only thing that's been standing in their way. And so in order for Georgia to get there, stands to reason, maybe Alabama's got to be removed from the equation. Now, there could be a given year obviously, where both of them shine and and Georgia wins a title one year and then Bama wins it the next year. Yeah, well, then they're both hanging out at tier one. But loosely, conceptually, you get what I'm saying. There are only so many wins to go around. So I think all the listed teams that you put here, Texas A&M, North Carolina, Notre Dame, Penn State, Oregon, Florida, LSU, yeah, those are all reasonable assumptions, I think. Notre Dame, obviously, we've talked about them a lot. Penn State's kind of the same way. Texas A&M's kind of the same way. Everyone's waiting for them to increase their production level at quarterback, and there has to be someone that you're genuinely scared to face at that position, and none of those programs have had that yet. And I don't think those programs have that this year. Would love to be wrong about one or multiple, but I don't know that Jack Cohn or Sean Clifford or even Haynes King, I don't know that anyone is trembling in their boots to see that team on the schedule. Now, you may think to yourself, Penn State's going to be a really hard team to beat. You're right. Ditto for A&M. Ditto for Notre Dame. But I don't think you say, I don't know how we're going to stop that quarterback they have. That's It's just overall roster and athleticism and just high level of program play that would intimidate you right now. Now, the fun part of that is it's a two-tiered question. Obviously, if one rises, then maybe you have to have one fall. So if Texas A&M were to be that team, well, if Texas A&M became that team this year, it inevitably requires that they have beaten Alabama en route to a championship. And if they've beaten Alabama... Well, that's the biggest news of the college football season. Someone overtook Alabama. And then you have to ask yourself, well, is this a one-year thing? They're asking that in the SEC East at a division level right now. Is Florida over Georgia a one-year thing and order will be restored in 2021? Or is it the beginning of something a lot bigger? What if North Carolina were to beat Clemson in the ACC championship game? Is it a one-year thing or is it the beginning of something a whole lot bigger? Iowa State over Oklahoma in the Big 12. Ditto. You can ask this question in multiple conferences this year. What if Wisconsin, team I'm very high on, was to beat Ohio State? What if Ohio State were to lose one game in the regular season and then get beat by Wisconsin, and Wisconsin goes to the playoff and Ohio State's not even in it? And so preseason, at the outset, people like me are talking about Ryan Day as being right near the top of my coaching power ratings And he has one of easily the most talented overall rosters assembled in college football. And he's got three or four quarterbacks that would be the envy of 95% of the sport. And they don't even make the playoff. Well, that would be a huge topic to follow. Nick Saban and Alabama being taken down. Dabo and Clemson being taken down. Those would be huge topics to follow. And I don't think, certainly all of them happening is out of the realm of possibility. It is not out of the realm of possibility for one of those things to happen this year, guys. I'm going to talk about kind of this a whole lot more on Late Kick Live tonight, I think there are a few factors coming into play, a little convergence of factors that in and of themselves may seem pretty small in nature, but when you bring them all together, 
it's a pretty big deal. I think a lot of things are coming together to create a fair amount of balance that we haven't seen maybe in the last couple of years. I'm not sitting here telling you, I want you to go out and predict Boston College to be able to overtake Clemson this year, or I really think it's Arkansas's time to topple the mighty Crimson Tide. I'm not telling you that, but I am telling you, if we saw two one-loss teams play in the national championship game this year, even that would be considered pretty unique relative to what the expectation level is. Expectation level is we're just going to have two mega powers meet in the national title game. They're both going to be undefeated, and the winner will cap a historic season. That's what happened with Alabama this past year. Uh, That's what happened with LSU in 2019. Clemson has done this now. Several teams. It almost seems like it's the new trend. If you're going to win a title, it's just going to be an undefeated season where you're going to buzzsaw everyone. Maybe, but I don't think so this year. I don't think that's the path that any team in college football is going to take this year. And a number of factors go into play for me to make that statement. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more tonight. It's a good question, though. Jeff kind of asked the same version of that question. So, Jeff, I want you to consider that my answer to you as well. But I did want to mention you by name. Uh, Cuppy hit me up the other day, and I told him I was going to answer this on Tuesday, and then I promptly forgot it, and he was none too pleased, so we got to hit it now. Was 2014 TCU the biggest playoff snub we've ever seen? Well, you're not going to like my answer on this. I don't believe a team's ever been snubbed from the playoff. Not a single year. And I'm the guy, there is no video record of this, but I'm the guy who was on radio down in Columbus, Georgia, when they first announced that we were going to have a playoff and they announced what the selection process was going to be. I thought it was going to be rife with controversy. I did not trust the committee. I did not trust the protocols. I didn't trust them to properly interpret strength of schedule. And for the record, I still don't, but I think they've gotten it right in spite of that in some cases. I was petrified that we were going to have snub after snub after snub. And I'm being serious with you when I tell you I have agreed with the four teams they've put in every single year, which in and of itself is one of the bigger upsets of the modern era, at least as it relates to me. Knowing the administrative pushback I have on a lot of the aspects of this sport, I am very, very honest with you. I don't think anyone's ever been snubbed, but I remember this. I've already heard the arguments. I'm not rehashing the arguments. I know how I feel. You know how you feel. No one is relitigating their opinion on the 2014 playoff selection process. If you think TCU or Baylor should have been in, I know what you think. I know why you think it. I just disagree with it. But I will tell you, I have such a vivid memory of exactly where I was and what I was thinking the moment this thing shifted. For those of you who do not remember, or maybe you have a foggy memory of how the 2014 playoff selection process happened, here's the 30-second nutshell. I am notorious for previewing something being 30 seconds and going five minutes. I've noticed that about myself. So we're going to pencil in 30 seconds here. TCU and Baylor were, I think, both 12-1, 11-1. They had one loss. The Big 12 did not have a conference championship, even though their entire league's motto was one conference champion. This is going to be so much longer than 30 seconds. So their motto was one true champion, and they failed to give us the one thing that their motto promised, a one true champion. Meanwhile, Ohio State loses to Virginia Tech in like week two, and then they rattle off an undefeated rest of the season. But even going into conference championship Saturday, it was largely believed around the country that Ohio State was was sort of on the outside looking in and which Big 12 team is going to make the playoff field. And I covered the SEC championship game this day. I believe it was Bama-Florida or Bama-Missouri. It was a very forgettable game. But I remember leaving the Georgia Dome, rest in peace, one of my all-time favorite buildings, nostalgic. And I'm leaving the Georgia Dome, and the Big Ten championship games happening that night. It's Ohio State-Wisconsin. Wisconsin is favored in the game. They are a slight favorite in the game. And Ohio State is pulling away. I mean, they are splattering Wisconsin all over Indianapolis, Indiana. And I remember it was like a 30 to 45 minute span 
where it seemed like the entire nation's collective narrative shifted from which Big 12 team are we going to take to there's no way we're going to be able to keep Ohio State out. And so then you started undressing all the different arguments and the pros and cons. And it became clear to me, I was driving home from Atlanta, it became clear to me, this is going to go Ohio State's way. Because what they had was, Ohio State had a little bit better strength of schedule. For all the commotion that people had made all year about how the Big Ten strength of schedule was really weak, Ohio State's schedule metrics roughly worked out to be either equal to or a little bit better than Baylor or TCU. They actually played in a conference championship game and won it. And you know, I don't put as much stock in that as the committee, but I'm not on the committee. So that was point two. And point three, the whole thing came down to that Saturday. Because up until that point, there was a discernible advantage that a TCU or a Baylor had over Ohio State that just rapidly evaporated as the evening went on. So that's a standalone game. I think it was at night. And so it's the last memory in the committee's mind. All Ohio State had to do was pull even. Now, in my mind, they didn't pull even. I had Ohio State ahead of TCU or Baylor. If I were a committee member, I would have had them ahead of them. But at the very worst, they pulled even. Well, you and I both know what's happening if Ohio State, as a mere brand, pulls even with Baylor or pulls even with TCU. It's not even at all. They are going to get the benefit of the doubt because everyone thinks they know that Ohio State's the better team because they follow recruiting rankings and they just think, well, on a neutral field, I would favor Ohio State over TCU or Baylor today. And they weren't wrong. Now, I'm not telling you that's the best methodology to use if you view the teams as equal. But I don't think many people viewed them as equal. After that 59 to nothing, which was the final score, by the way, beat down in the Big Ten championship game over a team they were a slight underdog against, it was emphatic. And so the committee said, we value how you're playing at the end of the year. I'm not the biggest fan of that either, but that's what they said. And it's always mattered to them. And they put Ohio State in. And all that Buckeye team proceeded to do was win the national championship in convincing fashion. And so I don't think anyone got snubbed. So I don't have an answer for this because I don't think I've ever seen a playoff snub. Next up is Edwin. Edwin says, you said that you think an undefeated Cincinnati will make the playoff this year. I agree in most scenarios, but what if the playoff committee were forced to pick between undefeated Cincinnati and a one-loss Power 5 champ? What about one-loss Cincinnati? Would they choose the Bearcats? If not, does it prompt Cincinnati and other high-profile G5 teams to jump ship and seek a spot in a Power 5? Uh, well, they're already exploring that, Edwin. They've explored that long, but they would have easily. I mean, Cincinnati would take an invitation to the Big Ten tomorrow, regardless of how this season turns out. And they would crawl over broken glass, bear crawl style to do it. So independent of the second part, the first part is this is very, very nebulous. When we say it like this in the abstract, in the preseason, there's no way to know what the real answer is. We're, we're asking ourselves, would the committee take an undefeated Cincinnati over a one-loss Power 5 champ? Well, who, who is it? Is it USC having lost one game? I think Cincinnati's going over them. Is it the University of Georgia? No, I don't think Cincinnati's going over them. Is it the Clemson Tigers with their only loss being to Georgia? Now, my gut tells me the committee would still take Clemson, but what if the rest of the ACC schedule just totally bombs this year? Cincinnati is in the most advantageous position any G5 team has ever been. It's also why I don't buy into whatsoever this phrase that's really lazily delivered that a G5 team's not allowed to make the playoff. A G5 team will never make the playoff. That's garbage. No, they haven't made the playoff. And it I'm the last person that would ever have bias here because I'm against a G5 team ever making the playoff for reasons I have long ago stated on this podcast. So the last person in the world who wants to admit this is me. 
but I also am not blind. I think I understand some logic here. You've got to understand why a G5 team's never made the playoff. In my mind, it's very simple. No G5 resume, no team from the G5's resume has ever measured up. And that is true. I agree with that statement. But now the AAC as a conference is viewed with more legitimacy than it's ever been viewed. So if Cincinnati goes undefeated, first off, they've gone undefeated against a conference schedule that we now view, many of us at least, as being on par with the lower levels of the Power Five. I agree with that. And then secondly, and this is more important, if Cincinnati goes undefeated, that means you've watched them go to Indiana and win, top 20 team, and you've watched them go to Notre Dame and win, top 10 caliber team. If they do both of those things and they're undefeated, including a conference championship win in what is widely perceived to be not only the best G5 conference, but one that's very comparable with the lower levels of the Power Five, you've never had a resume like that. Oh, and by the way, this team will be starting the season inside most people's top 10, top 15. So in your mind as a committee member, they're not coming out of nowhere. They're not trying to prove themselves from off into the abyss. They're already at the forefront of the conversation. These things I'm telling you, it's called context. And the context matters here. That's why no G5 team has ever made the playoff. Doesn't necessarily equal no G5 team will never make the playoff. All right, I need to fan myself. I hit pause. I got to admit, I hit pause. Got a little worked up. G5 conversations normally don't do that to me, but I got a little worked up. Uh, We got another question here. And it's probably going to get me worked up again for reasons that I will state right after the ad break. So stay with me. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Scott, very observantly, has said, you've had a lot of movie comparisons on your shows recently, so I was wondering... What do you consider the best and worst sports movies ever, or at least that you've seen? (sighs) Let me gather my thoughts. 
Uh, so when Scott emailed me this, it was last night. As I'm recording, it's Thursday morning slash early afternoon. So last night, I was in the office, as I normally am, with Fleetwood Mac blaring as loud as I can turn it up and not interrupt the janitorial service in the office part. And I'm all alone in the office so I can do such things. But I'm, I was Googling worst sports movies ever because I wanted to see what other people thought about this. And it got me so triggered. I pulled up the first article and it was 19 worst sports movies ever. And some of my favorite sports movies are on the worst sports movies of all time list. Allow me to share. Ed was number one all time worst sports movie. And those of you who have never seen it, and judging by the ratings, that's a lot of you, well, it's just about a monkey who learns how to play baseball in the AAA level. I don't see anything wrong with it. It's a free country. It's a great movie. It's got one of those dudes from Friends as the lead character. If you want to consider that a flaw, consider it a flaw. I love Ed. I'll go to bat for Ed. Summer Catch, Freddie Prince Jr. could do no wrong in the 2000s, people. Freddie Prince Jr. and Jessica Biel delivered. I thought it was a great depiction of what the Cape Cod League must be like, speaking as someone who's never visited the Northeast in his life. Draft Day, it was a no-win situation, because some of you out there are draft snobs, and Mel Kuyper Jr. himself could have directed the movie, and you still would have said, oh, it's unrealistic. They never really captured the spirit of the draft. I don't care. I love Kevin Costner. I thought it was very well done. But I also don't go into movies with a notebook pad on my lap taking critical notes and arcing storylines. I don't do that. I just I want to basically turn my mind off and just soak up a story. And if it's halfway decent, I'll pay my money for my popcorn and Sour Jacks, hopefully if you have them at the counter. Uh, no carbonated beverage, please. But I'm happy with that kind of movie. But again, I'm not a movie critic. I'll criticize other things. I just want to be entertained. That's why I made Outer Banks the way I made Outer Banks, if you know what I mean. Uh, the Fan? You're telling me The Fan is one of the worst sports movies of all time. A movie that features a real-life baseball game being played in a monsoon, the likes of which you would have to delve deep into the Amazon rainforest to ever find yourself in. And it's in Candlestick Park which is the only flaw of the movie because it was one of the worst stadiums in the history of American sports. But you've got Bobby Rayburn, a.k.a. Wesley Snipes, with his son kidnapped, having to hit a home run to get his son back, and the kidnapper all the while has murdered the home plate umpire and worked himself into the game and ends up being shot to death on the mound by San Francisco police before he can wind up and throw a knife at Wesley Snipes, who has just hit an inside the park home run to get his son back, only to be told later by Robert De Niro, nope, needed it to go over the fence. What's not realistic about that? I don't get what the problem is with that at all. It was a great movie. Several one-liners that were classic. If you've never seen The Fan, I, I, it's one of my favorite sports movies. It's not one of the worst. It's one of the best. But I'll tell you what this list did get right, Scott and everyone else listening. What this list did get right is they had, I think, rated number two what actually is the overall worst sports movie of all time. Airbud's seventh inning fetch is an abomination to sports movies. When Airbud came out, Airbud was great to take your little nephew to. Airbud was great, you know, if you had four or five year olds that you wanted to get out of the house for the afternoon. Airbud, great family entertainment. It was like the homeward bound of the sports genre. I had no problem with it. I myself watched Airbud. But Airbud is one of those movies that A, you're glad you took your little nephew too, but B, when you're walking out of the theater, you're also saying, all right, we got that out of the way. But then all of a sudden, you're going about living your life. And you see a promotional poster for a sequel and several spinoffs. And they did a baseball, Airbud, and it was called Airbud Seventh Inning Fetch. 
and I want to throw up just talking about it. Because if you've taken your little nephew to one, your little nephew wants to see the entire series. And again, I cannot overstate this enough. Abomination. Abomination. It's one of the few times I'll ever use five-syllable words on this show. You know my feeling about long words, but it fits here. Air Bud, Seventh Inning Fetch, the worst sports movie ever made. Case closed. I hope I haven't been unclear there. Uh, last question. We are still overflowing from Tuesday, so I can't even get through all of them right now. Uh, why don't colleges just make a degree related to football or any sport that goes pro? This is according to Steve. Steve, I advocated for this a couple of weeks ago. I think they should do this. And I don't just think it means go to practice every day. There are, there are hundreds of thousands of people, I would venture to say, in our country alone making a living off the sport of football who've never buckled a chin strap or laced up a pair of cleats in their life. What's this alarm going off for? Oh, I got to talk to Will Fong. Will Fong, Steve Will Fong, so important he gets his own set of alarms on the eye, Josh. All right, so, uh, so back to my point here, Steve. I think it should be there. Everything from the economics to the marketing side of things. Basically, the sport of football is no different than the world of economics or the world of law and finance or a million different career paths you can go down. Nursing, any given field you could get yourself into, it has attached to it an apparatus of skills that you need. Football has attached to it an apparatus of skills that you need. And I'm not talking about being a player. Long after your playing days, whether you're going to put a lapel mic on and sit at a, a desk and talk about it as an analyst, or you're going to be a consultant, or maybe you want to get into coaching, or maybe you want to do several other things. Maybe you want to start your own analytics company. Maybe you want to start your own scouting service. Point being, you need to know how to operate a business there. You need to understand how to build a staff. You need to understand how to pay people, how to manage your own money. You need to understand communication skills, marketing skills. How do you get a logo generated? How do you hire a staff? How do you add regionality instead of locality to your business structure? There's so many different things you could be teaching someone if you had labeled as a major football. And then also, you could have different academic requirements tied to that major. So people don't scoff at the idea that this kid just got into Northwestern who otherwise would never be able to get into Northwestern. It's always been, it's always been a laughable commentary, I think, that surrounded the sport. Now, most time, football fans themselves aren't the ones saying it. The ones saying it are the ones who you don't really need to worry about because they're never turning on a game on Saturday anyway. Although the increased dollar sign on their paycheck is related to how good that football team does on Saturday, which they conveniently forget in that argument. All right, you heard the Wiltfong alarm, but before I go, I did want to bring up one more thing. So um, I'm not going to mention a name, but I do need to read a statement. It's been prepared for me that this person wanted read. Great news, Josh. My son, blank, proposed to his longtime girlfriend, and she said yes. Congratulations. Uh, this is where it gets interesting. The uh, father continues, I have to be careful approaching this question about when the date will be. I was hoping you could help a brother out. Can you just quickly mention blank and blank? Your Mr. C loves you very much, but fall weddings are highly discouraged. Thanks for the consideration. So I want to pass that on. I know this applies to a lot of people. We got some folks in our listening audience into a somewhat sticky situation a couple of weeks ago. So this is a delicate topic around late kick land right now, the whole fall wedding, but it shouldn't be delicate at all. Uh, it's kind of like heroin. Don't do it. Don't have fall weddings. And if you're going to do it, Wednesday exists for a reason, people. Courthouses exist for a reason. It can be done. You can thread the needle and keep everyone happy. But I also 
I got an inordinate amount of feedback from you guys that said, oh, I've had a fall wedding, but I figured out the secret. You just have to schedule it during Georgia's bye week or Kentucky's bye week. Well, first off, all your friends are not fans of the same team you're a fan of. And secondly, this is the most overlooked aspect. Adults with lives who want to block off Saturdays in the fall, they also look to that bye week and they schedule any kind of important thing in their life that they have to do on a weekend in the fall for that bye week. Either that or that is the literal only day that they're going to get to just be a recluse and lock themselves in a basement for 11 hours and not be bothered by the outside world. Don't take that from them and don't take college football games from them. It's 12 days a year, guys. I ran the numbers. I had our stats and info department work for me. And even if we factor in for holidays, they're like 340 or 345 other days you can choose from, including several Saturdays that aren't in the fall. So be a good sport. Be a good friend. Be a good son. Be a good daughter. Just be a good American. This should be in the Pledge of Allegiance. And when I'm elected college football commissioner, that's one of the first things that I'm going to push for. All right, we got to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you're following me on Twitter and Instagram at Late Kick Josh. I've seen a pretty big explosion on those platforms this week, and I'm going to assume it's you guys. So keep it coming. Thank you so much for that. I got to get this to producer Jordan ASAP. In the meantime, I'll see you tonight on Late Kick Live. Until then, have a great rest of your day, and God bless. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.